Welcome to the Tao of Color Grading Podcast. My name's Patrick Inhofer, and today we continue with part two of our interview with Flanders Scientific's CEO and General Manager, Brom Desmond. The thing to keep in mind when listening to this podcast, what is the most dangerous point of failure for a colorist? It's our reference displays. Because in the end, we have to make pictures that look good to our eyes, and if our display lies to us, we will make consistently bad choices. And that's what this part of my conversation with Brahm covers. Understanding how to test, profile, set up, and calibrate our displays. Because ones and zeros mean something, and we all need a way of ensuring our reference monitors are representing those ones and zeros correctly. In this episode, we go deep into display calibration and we throw out all sorts of numbers, nits and sempty papers and 2020 and 1886 and power functions, but really it's, it could be covered in three topics. The current state of calibration tools, the different monitor drifts of different technologies and the implication it has on us as colorists, and why did FSI change their factory default gamma settings and peak white settings very recently in the past couple months. Why did they do that? Now you might be asking yourself, why is it going to take us 50 minutes to talk about this? Because we are diving deep, baby. Are you ready? I'll see you on the other side of this interview. Here we go. Let's start with, you know, Rec 709. Mm -hmm. Let's start with some of the kind of changes we've seen on the calibration side. One of the things I've always loved about FSI is that as part of being an FSI customer, I can send in my display to you at any time, however often I want. All I have to do is pay the round trip shipping and yep. you will same day recalibrate it for me. Correct. And we still offer that service as often as you like for as long as you own the monitor. And we still have a lot of people who, who take advantage of that. One of the ways we've evolved, though, is we've tried to make our calibration architecture much more open to where you don't have to do it that way. You can really do it in-house and you can do it in-house to the same exact level that the factory is capable of doing it if you have the right tools. Uh, and we've done that for a number of reasons. Um, one of the reasons is some people just can't afford the downtime. You know, they have an engineer on staff who they pay good money to do these sorts of things and they need to be given the access to do it because they can't afford even a day or two of downtime. The other thing is, as we've grown internationally, if I ship a monitor in New Zealand, well, the guy in New Zealand doesn't really want to send it to Atlanta or Belgium to have it calibrated. And we fully respect that and want to give them the tools to be able to do that. Um, then there's the other just simple kind of logistical aspect of it, which is that, hey, we carry bigger monitors now. And a lot of people don't want to ship a 50-inch monitor <laughs> round trip. It gets a little expensive. And, yeah. and so there's, there's those types of things. And we've also found that, you know, some of these large facilities working on very high kind of high budget type things, they're going to recalibrate the monitor before every single major project. Yeah. You know, maybe that's overkill, but they want to be able to do that just for peace of mind. Yeah. And so we've really opened up and um, we, we've integrated with, um, uh, with Light Illusions, Lightspace CMS. They export in our LUT format. 
That's what we use here at the factory level to create the color space LUTs that are selectable in the monitor. We've also integrated with, uh, with Spectracal's CalMan. CalMan and LightSpace are available in their full versions that export in our LUTs, but also both companies, both Spectracal and LightIllusion, have made custom versions of their software available at much more aggressive price points that export just in our formats or maybe limited to working with just certain types of probes to really bring the cost down. So another part of the reason that this has become so much more accessible to our end users is that you're not looking at having to make a $10,000 investment anymore to do it right. I mean, you can literally buy a $600 kit these days that will do a very admirable job of calibration. Certainly for the editor who just wants things to be, you know, correct, maybe not, you know, $30,000 probe correct, but he wants to make sure that the stuff is going to look the same when he sends it to the colorist. Yeah, that's a great solution. And so these things have come down to price. Probes are more affordable these days. The software has gotten dramatically more affordable. And the other really big thing is that um, the software, in my opinion, as someone who uses this stuff day in and day out, and you know how our team especially uses it more day in day out than I do even, it's just become a lot simpler to use. So it, it's not this kind of dark art anymore. I really think that it's become quite accessible. The best way to kind of get a handle of how, how simplified the process has become is we, we have a quick start videos for both CalMan and for Lightspace on our website. I think they're like two minute videos and they take you through how the calibration process works, but it's really straightforward. Um, it produces excellent results. And one really exciting thing is that we, we kind of pride ourselves on delivering monitors that behave in a very kind of linear way. And what this allows you to do is you can use uh, two really cool features uh, for the respective companies. So in, in Lightspace, you've had for a while now, but it's really been refined to, to work even better. You have something called quick profiling. So with a decent probe, uh, you can do like a two-minute profile and get nearly bang on results on just about any of our displays. So you're not even looking at having to invest an hour and a half of your time doing this super long calibration anymore. Certainly for the people who need that extra 1% of accuracy, you can spend the hour still doing the long, the long calibration, but this quick profile will do the job for you. And what's really been exciting as of late is now we have the same thing on the CalMan side with their lightning LUT feature, which again, you can do just like a two-minute profile really honestly gives you these, these phenomenal results. And this has been real popular, especially with people who are kind of in, in time crunch type scenarios, you know, so you got the DIT who wants to calibrate before the, the day shoot or something like that. He doesn't have an hour to spend, you know, he needs to get this, this out and done. Maybe not as important in the post world, but certainly in a lot of other applications, it becomes a big deal. Um, or large facilities that have like 40 edit suites. You don't want to spend an hour in each one. So if you can spend a couple minutes in each one, and get all these things aligned, uh, that, that's obviously a, a new kind of fantastic feature. So we, we still offer the send-in service. Um, it's something we pride ourselves in. You know, if you, if you don't want to hassle with it, we totally get that. But we've also kind of started to make this push to encourage people that are very serious about getting it right and being able to do it themselves. And if nothing else, having that peace of mind, hey, I've done it myself, I'm looking at the graph, it says it's perfect, now I can go about my business and just start grading. Um, we're encouraging people to make that, relatively speaking, small investment to be able to do that. Yeah, and I got to tell you, when people approach me about 
calibration. And you know, one of the things I say is even if you're not comfortable uh, taking those results and applying them to your display, if nothing else, it's a sanity check. It is, yeah. And, it, and, it, and rather than wondering, should I send in my display for recalibration? Now you know. Now you have something that is kind of telling you, you know what, time to send it in. Rather than just doing it blindly every three months or two months because you just don't know. Exactly. Um, it at least gives you that. And then I could leave the end result up to the professionals like you. Um, the other thing I think that is really, because this, when we talked about this four years ago, not only was this a dark art, yeah. it, like you said, it was expensive. Yeah. The, the meters were expensive. The software was expensive. And the thing you need to generate the test patterns were expensive. Yeah. Now you can, now DaVinci Resolve Lite builds in a test pattern generator that you can use to perfectly test your signal path and use it with either Spectracal or Lightspace. Am I correct about that? Yeah, you are. It's real simple. You know, on the color tab uh, of, of Resolve, you just literally pull down and select either Lightspace or Calman, type in the IP address and uh, that, that's uh, given to you in the program, and you connect up to the program. It generates test patches. Like you said, especially for Resolve users, there is literally no better way to test your actual signal path and make sure that, that not only is your monitor calibrated, but the signal is getting to the monitor in the way that you intend. Um, so that's been huge for us, and that was one of the kind of missing components for us in the early days um, when we were uh, uh, trying to encourage people to use something like Lightspace was people like, well, I've got to use this HDMI output for my computer and I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know what my graphics card is doing and I don't know if I can trust the signal. This, this being able to interface with professional I.O. devices completely solves that problem. On the flip side, with, with Calman, you have the same thing. You have the Resolve integration. Uh, you also have their Virtual Forge product, which is actually what, what we use here uh, when we do QC reports uh, because it's a real simple way to connect without having to load kind of a, a heavier program. So um, it's, it, it's, really, it's really remarkable, especially when you consider that you can use you know, because we have guys who say, well, I don't use Resolve. I'm really more of a, of a camera guy, you know, or, or something like that, you know, where, where they're not editing. They don't have a workstation. They can still get Resolve Lite, like you said, for free. Uh, and then they can get a Blackmagic mini monitor for, what, 150 bucks, and yep. have professional serial digital output to, to do their test pattern generation. I mean, it just it's a phenomenal deal. Uh, so yeah, it's become a lot more accessible for a lot more people, and uh, we've been working with a lot of our clients to get them comfortable with the different calibration solutions. Um, and we've we've even expanded, you know, again to kind of catering more to the to the to the field use type audience. Um, we even have uh, like the Fuji IS Mini uh, LUT box uh, yeah. can also be used as a test pattern generator, and they have their own software, the IS Mini Manager, and that can export in our LUT format too. So you can hmm. you don't have to keep the LUT on the box like you do with some other monitors. Rather, what you do is you create the LUT with their software using that box as a test pattern generator, and their software will export so you can load that LUT directly to our monitor for calibration. So it gives DITs who, who are invested in the IS Mini anyway from Fuji, it gives them yet a third option for calibration. So, And we're open to working with other parties too. You know, um, it, It's just a matter of people reaching out to us, asking for the LUT format, 
We like to test and verify that it works, of course, so that we can better support it ourselves as well. But I only see the, the calibration options kind of expanding. And, and I hope, I sincerely hope that other companies, other modern manufacturers do the same thing because one of the ways that we're going to achieve better consistency in the industry is that if you buy my monitor and you buy two or three other brands of monitors for your facility for whatever reason, you want to use different brands and you want them in different rooms, if you can at least use the same program and the same signal path to go about and calibrate all of those, you should get very, very similar results. And I think it's going to help everybody with, uh, with the consistency throughout, the, uh, throughout their monitors. And as a quick aside, I'll, you know, a, a, a question that often comes up is what's the point of a professional reference monitor? Because you, know, you go home and you look at grandma's TV and it's blue and you go to your sister's house and it's red. Yeah. And you're like, you know, these things are all over the place uh, out in the wild. And, and my answer to that is ones and zeros mean something. And the point of a professional reference monitor is to represent what those ones and zeros mean. Yeah. And, and that's really what we want to get out of this is for our in-studio monitors to match each other so that when it goes into grandma's blue TV, everything is consistently pushed in the same direction. And exactly. to her eye, it's consistent. Exactly. You know? Start with that neutral middle and that way that it just appears normal. If you if if what you have is wrong and you also have a blue TV and you correct for that and then it gets to grandma's house, <laughs> it, it could get it could get ugly. So um, or even worse if it's in the opposite direction. So it, it's um, yeah, I, I think there's a, obviously a lot of value to having a calibrated monitor and being able to to do it with a high degree of precision in a largely automated way. That's the other thing that you know, yeah. maybe I didn't mention enough is that one of the beautiful things about these solutions like LightSpace and like CalMan is that it really is just plugging a few things in, selecting the standard you want, and you hit start. It generates the test batches. It does all the math for you, and it builds the lookup table, and then you just drag and drop it to the monitors. In so. my experience with this, the toughest part is to not open the door you know, while it's running its thing, you know, to just, you know, just to try to keep the room consistently the same, you know, yeah. brightness level, you know? Yeah. It, it's always, it's always great doing a calibration when someone walks in and flips on a light switch. Like, no! <laughs> now you've, you've been talking about nowadays, you know, we can use an affordable meter to get really yeah. good results. Does this mean that it's okay with current software to current technology to kind of rely on one of those sub $1,000 tri-stimulus pucks yeah, it, uh, that, that sit right on the screen? Yeah, it, it can be. You just need to understand the limitations, uh, understand what's best for your display technology, and, and understand, you know, kind of the caveats that go with any particular type of meter. Um, so one of the important things is if you do get something like uh, the X-Rite i1 Display 3 OEM is, is probably the best example, um, yeah. that is actually in my opinion, a really solid probe, provided that you have the display-specific matrix loaded for the type of display you're measuring. Not only that... Okay, but, so, uh, so you need to back up and explain to people what you're <laughs> saying there, because I understand you because you've already taught me this, yeah. but so what are you saying exactly? So the thing is that a tri-stimulus color analyzer is, is only accurate to one given type of spectral distribution, the spectral distribution that it's been calibrated for. So, and what we mean by spectral distribution is the type of light output that's coming from the display, the display's fingerprint, so to speak. So CCFL versus yeah. white L LED versus 
RGB LED. Yeah, absolutely. And if you literally, if you if you go to you know, if the listeners go to Google and type in spectral distribution, they'll see a a graph that pops up showing uh, the visible light spectrum, and you can see how different light sources like fluorescent and LED and OLED all kind of behave very differently. The energy is emitted at different wavelengths and different levels of energy, um, and what you need is you need that color analyzer, if it's a tristimulus color analyzer, to be set up so that it agrees with the high-end spectra. So the way that that's done is you take the spectroradiometer, which is basically a display agnostic measuring sure. device. Let me pause you Go for ahead. one yep. second. So I'm going to just kind of say what I've heard yes. and what you've taught me to hope that everyone follows along. So by tristimulus meter number one, we're talking about like that, that I1 puck which yeah. is a tri-stimulus, which basically has three filters in it, red, green, and blue. Correct. And that's how it measures the power output. It filters out those lights. It, I guess, has three sensors in there, one for each of those yeah. filters. So, yeah, maybe maybe I should uh, – I'll take my time. This I think I rushed through this in the last interview too. So <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll try not to bore everybody, but let me go through real quick. So, if they've listened this far, they're really interested in all yeah. this stuff anyway. So <laughs> I think it's safe to, to kind of get, get them up to speed. Sounds good. So uh, basically a tri-stimulus colorimeter, what it is, is it's a device that has three photodiodes typically. And those photodiodes basically turn light into an electrical current. And right. in front of each one of those photodiodes, you have a filter. You have a red filter, a green filter, and a blue filter. And so they filter out light just in that region and they measure, they, they measure that energy, so to speak, the, the photons coming in and they turn it into electrical current that tells you, tells you what the light levels are. Now, the issue with that is that those filters are meant to mimic the standard observer human eye response is meant to basically how, how your cones would respond. Which I guess that would be what is frequently known called CIE 1933 or whatever that is, right? So you have, uh, yeah, so CIE 1931, 1931. Two, degree, two degree standard observer is right. what most color space standards are referred to. Um, they use that color science. And what ends up happening is that those filters aren't Perfect. Right. And so what you need is you need to calibrate that colorimeter so that the results are essentially perfect for whatever type of light output or spectral distribution you're dealing with. Now, a spectroradiometer is different. What a spectroradiometer does is it uses basically a diffraction grating and it splits the light up into its component wavelengths. So this so, is like a prism, like the classic, like... yeah. Prism, you put white light in, and out comes the spectrum. Yeah, although it's usually a, a physical grading, but 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 same exact concept. You're absolutely right. right. It breaks the, the the light up into its component wavelengths, and what it does is it you know it just measures the energy at any particular wavelength. So it will, for example, say at 460 nanometers, I measure this much bluish light. I mean, this is how much energy I'm measuring. And it does that at all these different wavelengths and it calculates the color that way. And what's good about a spectroradiometer is that it is basically display agnostic because it's not reliant on these filters. Now, you can definitely have different levels of spectroradiometers 
and something to be really aware of. And people always kind of roll their eyes when I start talking about this, but <laughs> you need to know the spectral bandwidth of your spectroradiometer. It's one of the most important things. So you will find spectroradiometers or what sometimes are referred to as spectrophotometers that are really inexpensive. They may be like $1,000, but they're going to be 10 nanometer or even worse spectral bandwidth. And the problem is that in modern displays, you'll oftentimes run up against technologies that have very spiky light output or spiky spectral distributions, and 10 nanometers just doesn't cut it to give so you any like, level of accuracy. It's like trying to represent in 6-bit versus 8-bit versus 10-bit versus 12-bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, that's a great analogy, and that that that's the problem. Is it just it doesn't do a good enough job? So um, a lot of the high end spectros have historically been eight nanometer. We don't even consider that good enough anymore. So our kind of minimum benchmark is we look for a five nanometer or better spectral bandwidth spectro. We consider that adequate, and the reason we consider that adequate is just based on internal testing. We've tested versus uh, two nanometer. Uh, four, and a half, four nanometer, four and a half nanometer, five nanometer spectros, and there's very negligible differences. Uh, you know, they really don't have any impact whatsoever uh, on all the display types that we're currently selling, uh, whether you're using a two nanometer or five nanometer. But when you go from five to eight, then you start getting to some pretty significant differences in measurements with certain types of displays. So. We use a five nanometer spectra. All you do is you literally just measure white, red, green, blue there, and then you measure white, red, green, blue with the color colorimeter, and you build a matrix. And that matrix is the correction applied for that particular type of spectral distribution. Um, and as long as you have a really good spectra as a reference, and you program that matrix into that probe, and you select that matrix when you're measuring, then you're, you're inexpensive probe is f almost perfectly going to read the same as that that high-end spectro. Um, now, there are other considerations in color, color images. So before you get Go there, yep. so, so just to repeat back um, in my baby language, <laughs> uh, what we're doing is what we need to do is if we want to use a $600 probe, uh, you know, a tri-stimulus meter puck that we hang on our screen and get the same kind of results that you basically get in your factory. What we need to do is get a measurement on that specific one. It's not even by brand, right? It's literally like I have one, you have one, and they're going to be slightly different from each other. And what I need to do is get that measured and get those offsets, apply those offsets into my software to compensate for the differences. And now with those offsets, I'm getting results very similar to what I'd get from say an $8,000 spectroradiometer. Yeah, um, so the, the only caveat, that, or not caveat, but the only kind of clarification I'd offer there is yes. that certainly, yes, by brand it's true. You still, you still wanna dial down even further than that. But once you get to a specific model, as long as it's using the same panel, you don't have to go overboard and say, I, okay. need, I need to do the offset for my CM250 versus your CM250. So, so if I go into Lightspace or if I go into CalMAN and it has an offset built in for the FSI CM250, that's, that's close enough for- You'll be good as long board. as it was done on your specific probe. Now that, that's, that's the catch. So it, it doesn't matter so much. So, Right. So I need to choose two things. I need to yeah. choose your display and I need to choose 
the the model of probe that I'm using. I need those two choices in there. Well, yeah, and and even even more so, it so all the CM250s, the the spectral distribution for those will be as identical as makes no difference. Right. But the response from probe to probe in most brands of now some probes this isn't the case, but in most probes, even expensive colorimeters, you get variations in the filters and the photodiode response from probe to probe. So you really need to create a matrix for your specific probe. Okay. So All while right. you don't need a matrix for your exact CM250, you just need gotcha. one general it's for CM250. It's my probe that needs the specification. Your probe needs specific. So what okay. we offer to that end is that when you buy any colorimeter from us, whether it's the the you know six hundred dollar package or it's the you know thirteen thousand dollar package. Um, we take that colorimeter and we create offsets or we, we stopped calling them offsets because for a different reason we can get into okay. later, but we okay. call them matrix, matrices. So matrices. We, okay. we program those matrices in for every type of current display that we have. So what we do is we actually take a spectra, we take that colorimeter, we measure an OLED, we measure a white LED backlight LCD, we measure a CCFL backlight LCD. So every current technology we have um, and we create matrices for those. So when you buy from us, you get when you get that probe, it it will have those offsets. Now further to that, matrices, matrices. Sorry, <laughs> yes. So <laughs> thank you for catching that. Uh, so when you um, if you have your own colorimeter already, what you can do is you can send it to us, and as long as it's a brand that we're familiar with, if we know how to operate it, if we have a compatible piece of software. We'll create the matrices for you as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. So you can send it in. There's no charge for that. You pay shipping back and forth. But say you have, you know, let's say you have a K10A that you've had for a few years and it doesn't have uh, a matrix in it for the particular type of technology you want to measure. No problem. Send it to us. Uh, we'll get it for your particular type of Flanders monitor. And, and you didn't have to buy it, it from you even. You could have bought no. it from a third party. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. As, long, yeah. as, long as, you, as long as it's to go with a monitor we've sold you, we'll be happy to do it. So, so I think I think we've we've dug into this I think about as deep as we need to for yeah. people to understand that this is achievable, it's doable, um, and there's no reason why you can't be doing this on your own. So now in your experience, because I know you keep pretty accurate records as to how often people send in their their displays, how much alignment they typically need. Yeah. On average, how often do people really need to send in uh, their displays? Yeah, and that that ends up being a tough question because it really has to do with um, how often you use it and also where you use it. Environmental factors we found can can have a big influence, and also how you use the display in terms of uh, you know what the settings are. So if you're uh, if you have a CM two forty, which is our our CCFL backlight LCD, and you've been running it at you know two hundred nit instead of hundred nit then it's going to drift faster. And so it, it ends up being a guessing game. So people call us a lot of times and they say, well, when should I send it in? And this is one of the reasons we encourage people to make you know these kind of investments in gear to, to test themselves is that for us, all we can say is, hey, typically we'd recommend every, you know, for this particular model, maybe six to 18 months. And they go, well, that's a wide span. And I was like, well, yeah, it really depends on how often you use it. 
Certainly on any of our displays, I probably wouldn't go longer than 18 months. What is interesting is that our, <laughs> our white LED backlight, some of our yeah. less, least expensive displays, are actually some of the most stable. And that's because you don't have independent color channels in the backlight. Um, so you don't have like our RGB backlight where you have, um, you have different rates of aging between those LEDs. So everything is, is much more gradual on those and you get kind of this light fall off and you get this slow kind of drift in color temperature. But those are probably the most stable. OLED is probably the least stable, but still nowhere near as bad as like a plasma or CRT was. Um, and the CCFL is somewhere in between. Um, so, it, you know, it, it's highly variable and we're happy to do it as often as you like. But this is, again, another great argument for maybe making an investment in the calibration kit to at least check things, as you said, if not actually do the calibration yourself. And you've told me in the past that really the biggest thing you get isn't so much color drift as brightness drift, you know, the dimming of the display. And oftentimes all you need is to really measure, you know, that white peak white value and then just bring it back up to where it needs to be. Yeah. So I would only qualify mm -hmm. that now in that that is absolutely true when we're talking about CCFL okay. and even white LED to, to some extent. Okay. Um, but things have changed a little bit in that with RGB LED backlights, it's always been the case that you, you will also get color temperature drift on those. But with OLED, now we're talking about those individual channels that do age at very different rates. So you will not only get a luminance drift, but you will get a noticeable color shift over time on those. And so that is that is something to be aware of. Now they've they've tried to mitigate this by by changing the size of the phosphor set on the OLED. So like your blue phosphor is actually larger than the other ones, mm. um, but you still get this kind of you get kind of this less consistent drift. You don't you don't get this just drop in luminance and that's it. But you're right on the on the CCFL. That certainly was was the case. That the primary thing is that that drift in luminance over time. And since we're talking about drift, another thing uh, just to throw out there real quick because this is a mistake I've seen a couple people make over the years is keep in mind that your uh, monitor is not the only thing that drifts. So probes drift as as well. Right. Even spectroradiometers need to be recalibrated. So. Making sure that your color analyzers are recalibrated at regular intervals is also important. And that we have kind of a more known uh, or well-known or well-established recommended interval. So um, on most of the high-end colorimeters, we suggest once a year. On a high-end spectro, we recommend once a year. On some of the lower-end colorimeters, maybe more often. Um, and this is one of the reasons, you know, when you talk about differences in colorimeters, why you might want to spend more on a higher-end colorimeter uh, not only do they measure faster, maybe offer a little bit better repeatability in the low lights and have better measuring thresholds, can measure into darker and, and brighter areas better, uh, but you also tend to get a little bit less drift on those higher end colorimeters uh, for the most part anyway. So then maybe what you're saying I'm kind of hearing is that if I've got one of those lower end pucks, I might want to send that into you twice a year. Uh, to get yeah, it's not a bad idea. Okay, right. it's not. It's not. And, and again, some will be different than others. It, it's hard to kind of make a blanket statement. I, I've seen some puck style colorimeters that are that are certainly um, more stable than than some of the high end one. There's um, without mentioning names. There's there's one particular high end colorimeter that that we have experience with that um, actually is the one one probe we have here that that requires recalibration the most often with our spectros. Uh, and then there are. Um, 
there are other brands, you know, where it kind of remains to be seen, you know, the colorimetry research probes are kind of new to the market. And, uh, we've been, uh, playing with those and found them very stable so far, but we only have, you know, uh, you know, four or five months of experience with them. So, um, you know, we're always tracking these things too, to kind of see how stable, new new colorimeters are so we can give people better estimates as to how often they should send their stuff in. And so then this brings us, we're talking about calibrating our displays. And the question is, what are we calibrating them to? Yes. Uh, and this is a bit of a moving target on the back end here, isn't it? Uh, we've got yeah. Rec. 709. Uh, which has very well established. That's the HD color space. We're not even going to deal with SD anymore. Let's say make believe yeah. it doesn't exist. <laughs> and so we've got the HD standard very well defined. You know where pure red, green, and blue is is very well. De- you know that's that's the standard. Yeah. Um, and this is also true for say digital cinema. We've got DCI P3, which yep. again has its set of where red, green, and blue primaries need to be. Uh, and the one thing especially in Rec. 709, that's been a bit of a gotcha is... And the other thing we also have on our standards is how bright should white be, right? Yes. And you've recently made a little bit of change in how you calibrate your displays by default when you ship them out. And from what mm-hmm. I understand, what you've changed is where you set the default for the, the white point in terms of brightness and where you set the gamma and the kind of perceived contrast of a of a display that has changed as well because that gamma isn't specified in Rec. Seven Hundred Nine and and that's always a big point of argument among colorists. What did yeah. you do and why did you do it? Yeah, so fantastic question. And what what we do now is we do use um, we use a, a Power Two Point Four. Um, uh, function for the what we call the you know the gamma response or the more appropriately the electro optical transfer function. Um, so we use we do use two point four instead of two two at this point. We saw a couple different reasons to do this. One, we saw that um, two four was becoming uh, a more popular selection amongst our kind of color critical crowd. Um, we've always had a setting on this on the monitor, a menu setting that allows you to go from, you know, basically any gamma response from 1.8 to about, I think, 3.0 or 2.8, something like that, in 0.2 step increments. And that is mathematically calculated, but uh, and it works pretty darn well, especially on the LCDs. On the LCDs, you can go from like a 2.2 to a 2.4, and that selection is pretty much bang on is because it's pretty easy to mathematically calculate that. It gets a little trickier when you're dealing with an OLED monitor, but we've tried to make that kind of work as best as possible. That being said, we do have to select a baseline for where do we calibrate the gamma response of the display in the wide gamut mode and then calculate everything off of that. And we do that now at 2.4. And that is how the monitor is delivered by default is at 2.4. And um, I will go on to say that, you know, besides that baseline gamma response and those gamma selections on the menu, we also do have separate lookup tables that are for each color space. So it's not like we're internally quickly trying to calculate you know, P3 and EBU and SEMTC and, and Rec. 709, what we're doing instead is there's actually a LUT for Rec. 709, there's a LUT for P3, and those are based on actual measured data. So um, so you get a couple different levels of, of selections there. 
I'd also like to point out, of course, that it's completely flexible. I mean, that's the whole point of the open calibration architecture is you can make it do whatever you want with whatever probe you want. So if it doesn't agree with your probe or you want some sort of different standard, um, you can either try to do that through the quick toggles on the menu or you can dial it in as accurately as you want with your own gear. But that being said, we do use uh, 2.4 now. And um, a, a question that comes up sometimes is, uh, why do you use Power 2.4 and not BT-1886? I had that question lined up for you, and you're about to hit it. Good. Go for it. Yeah. So the there's a lot of considerations for why we don't do that. But one of the most important ones has to do with the OLED. So we, we deliver our OLEDs with black set at zero. So when you have zero IRE on screen, you get no light output. Now, if you if you look at the BT-1886 equation and you type in zero as your black level, what you get is a power 2.4 function. Mm. So it is perfectly 2.4 and there's no variation. So what we've done is we've made that the standard and moreover, it's not just for uh, kind of the simplicity of just saying, hey, we're just gonna plug in zero, but it's also because if you are trying to measure an OLED screen that is that dark, uh, you may catch some stray reflecting photons or some noise from the probe or whatever it is, but you get kind of these variable, not very repeatable measurements. And so if you calibrate every OLED that you're producing with a BT-1886 equation using an actual measured black as opposed to zero or just using a 2-4 power function, you're going to get variability in those calibrations. And you're basically using a junky, noisy reading that you know is below the probe's threshold. No probe can measure that low because basically you're measuring nothingness. Right. And so that becomes problematic. Now what we have done that's kind of interesting uh, and useful is that as you turn up the brightness knob on the, um, on the OLED, the way if you start at 2.4, as you crank that brightness knob up, the gamma response will change and track pretty much spot on to BT-1886 regardless of where you set that black level. Hmm. So you can set that black level at 0.01 nit or you could set it at 0.05 nit and you'll get a BT-1886 response without really having to recalibrate your display. Uh, now if you want to fine tune and get that last you know quarter of a percent more accuracy, you can do your entire calibration with that target luminance in mind, but it's really kind of a neat feature that we built in to allow these OLEDs to respond as an 1886 all the way down from zero, where again, 2.4 and 1886 would be the same, to a more lifted black, uh, whatever that level may be. So this kind of brings us, to, and by the way, this is not true with LCDs because you've often told me, no, 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 don't, if you're going to brighten up the display, brighten up the backlight with the CCFL, don't yeah. touch the brightness knob. And you're telling Correct. me if I want to change the peak white value on my OLED, I could actually use the brightness knob on the front of that display? No, so that brightness is really meant to adjust the low end. So you're huh. gonna be adjusting your black level. Now that will have some crosstalk effect potentially with your 
um, with your peak luminance, though, it's going to be pretty minimal. Okay. Um, if you want to fine tune that part of it, you can use the contrast knob, um, or you could use, if you really wanted to, the system's uh, luminance setting. So we're, they're kind of talking about different things. So we're talking about you know overall luminance. Yep. Um, yep. You would still want to use. So if you're using your OLED outside and you want it to be brighter than 100 nit, then, then yeah, by all means, go and go to the system menu. There's an actual luminance toggle and you can throw it up to different peak luminance levels and everything kind of tracks along with that. Um, but when we're talking about specifically about raising blacks, because the big discussion these days is where do I set the black level on my OLED? Gotcha. Now, I'm not going to make any argument <laughs> that, that in theory, yes, you probably should not be running an OLED at pure black. That being said, uh, I'm not in the business of arguing with my clients day in and day out. And simple matter of fact is when we ship out OLEDs, the vast majority of our clients just absolutely refuse to raise black levels on their OLEDs because it's one of the entire reasons that they bought that technology. Yeah. They want to, when they look at black on the screen, they want it to look like it's off because that is what gives you the wow factor. Now, if you want to turn it up, and I'm not saying that's bad advice, that could be very sound advice, especially if you want to make it look more like an LCD, then you can basically use that brightness knob to do that. And where you set that can be variable. The really only guidance that we have for that as far as it, like an industry standard goes is if you look at the EBU grade one monitor specifications or recommendations, uh, what they call for is that your black level should be lower than 0 0.05 nit. So you need to be below that. Now, some people sometimes just throw out 0.05 as the target. That, that's technically, if we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty of it, a little too bright. You want to be below that threshold. I think most people, if you put them in a room and you start with black at zero and then you turn it up to 0.05 nit on an OLED, people are going to be like, no way am I using 0.05 nit because it looks really bright by by. Uh, you know, by contrast to uh, to the way that uh, that zero looks. And can a, can now, a tristimulus puck measure that difference in brightness? Uh, a puck, maybe. Not. I'm not sure how repeatable yeah. the puck would okay. be at that level. But certainly the higher end colorimeters, like the CR100 like from C100 okay. or K10A or something like that, uh, Minolta CA310, all those probes will do a fantastic job of measuring down at that level. Uh, the question is, you know, how repeatable are right. they? But certainly you can set down in that area. And what I would recommend personally, and th this is preference, it's not, you know, you know, it's not the gospel, so to speak. But if you do a point, a 0 0.01 nit and you have 100 nit peak luminance, then you're looking at about a 10,001 contrast. Gotcha. And that looks great. It still gives you slightly elevated black levels. Uh, and you can just kind of do that same math going forward to see where you want to be. At 0 0.02, you're going to be at 5,001 contrast. It's where you get to that 0 0.05 that you're only at 2,001 contrast, which on an OLED, it, it just doesn't look right, in my opinion. On an LCD, it's it's different. Yeah. but um, And that that's something hard to kind of quantify, but it's something very easy to show somebody. So you know, you can pick and choose what you want there. The brightness knob gives you plenty of kind of fine-tuned adjustment to, to toggle several steps uh, in and out of there and find the, the level that works for you. Some people leave it at zero. In fact, as, like I said, most people leave it at zero. 
Uh, but certainly raising it a bit is is sound advice. And if you're open to that and you're not going to yell at me for saying that, <laughs> then uh, then maybe target 0 0.01 or 0 0.02. And to be clear, that would be using the brightness knob on... The brightness okay. knob. And, Correct. And now one of the questions, related questions that I got off of Lift Gamma Gain from Pep Jin, I hope I'm saying his name right, is the difference between the 2.4 power law and BT1886. I've had this discussion with you before about BT1886. Yep offline. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what the heck is that? What are they trying to accomplish with this weird BT-1886 thing? Yeah, so uh, the, the whole concept behind BT-1886 is that you don't use a pure power function. And it, it's kind of interestingly, it's meant to deal with displays that perhaps uh, can't get to the the type of black levels that you might have been able to get on, say, a CRT. So instead of having a pure power function, you get kind of these linear segments in certain in the low end, um, and so it changes the way for for better or worse. Uh, I guess the best way to kind of try to phrase this is it changes the way you come out of black uh, is the primary place where you will see a difference. Um, again, what's interesting is that. Um, the BT1886, what it is, is really it's a 2.4 power function that sits on top of basically a black offset. And it's, it's a matter of what you do with that black offset. Now, as mentioned, when you, when you have an OLED at zero, you, you actually, the equation, if you do the math, gives you nothing but a pure power function of 2.4 all the way through. So when someone says, can you ship my OLED set to BT1886? I say, it is. And they say, no, it says 2.4. I was like, no, no, that's the same thing. Uh, unless you're raising your black level. But as we mentioned, if you raise your black level with that brightness knob, the OLED happens to track very well with that BT1886 equation, regardless of where you set black. The, the, the whole thing, the, the whole purpose of all of this is to try to get displays to perceptually appear more like CRTs. If you, if you read the standard, it actually specifically states that as the purpose. And so some people may be asking, you know, why are we chasing these old legacy devices uh, as, as, you know, points of reference for our standard? And the reason is simple, is what we're used to. It's what we've been grading on for so many years. And to change it now is going to make, you know, old footage look different. It's going to make experienced colors have to deal with a very different types of response. That being said, you know, on a personal note, this is not official company FSI policy by any means, but I think BT1886 can be a little problematic because it presumes that you have a good, good and repeatable color analyzer that can measure in the ranges that we're talking about. And that's something that, you know, Certainly, you can do a good job of calibrating with, with a lot of probes, but some of the lower-end probes just simply don't provide very repeatable results at, at low-light levels. So you could, you know, if you have an inexpensive probe, you could do a calibration three times and get three different results. So, and this really comes uh, into play if I'm using Lightspace or I'm using CalMan. Uh, there's an option there as to what I select. Do I select BT1886 or do I select... To power two power four. two four and so that's where this comes into play and so then you've got to make a decision based on the equipment I have um, you know is it worth going to BT eighteen eighty six or not yeah and it's interesting too like you even and maybe I'm just not reading it right I mean I I'm, I don't spend all my time <laughs> in engineering circles but when you look at like the 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 
the EBU documents on this, they, they recommend a nominal value of 2.4. And then they kind of say, hey, this brings us into accordance with, with BT 1886. Uh, and they do mention, you know, that it's 2.4, but, you know, you need to consider the black offset. But they don't really ever spell out the equation, nor do they specifically point to 1886 other than saying that it 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 is uh, in accordance with it. So I, I don't know. I mean, um, it, it's also one of those things where if I take the average person and <laughs> and show them 2.4 versus 1886 on a display with really good black levels – they can't see much of a difference. It's only when we get to displays with poor black level performance that I think you see more of a difference. So yeah, it's. I think that it's uh, It's certainly an interesting topic. I, I think people get really, really hung up on it and, and perhaps shouldn't, you know, I'm not saying it's not important, but it, it's, it's something that I think people are hyper-focused on and maybe shouldn't be quite as hyper-focused on because it's not going to have as dramatic an impact as people believe it will. So what about, let's then move on to the peak luminance value on our display. Yeah. We've changed that as well. Uh, yeah. Where did that come from? Well, you know, that, that was simple for us because SEMTI came out and said, this is what you should do. Uh, when did they, uh, and when did they so, say this? <laughs> yes. So uh, there's actually a, um, um, a SEMTI, um, uh, SEMTI document. It's uh, ST2080-1 <laughs> uh, that came out late last okay, year. Okay, so this is and, new. This is brand new. So it's new. Yeah, I think it was October, November that, that, that it came out. And they specifically recommend 100 nit peak luminance plus minus five nit tolerance. So that's 29.2 foot Lamberts. And what's really kind of refreshing about that is it it really gets us in accordance kind of with what the EBU trend has been for a much longer time in that for a grade one monitor, they specify that the monitor should be adjustable to a range of between 70 and 100 nit depending on viewing environment and preference. So that both kind of point to 100 nit kind of gives us this more kind of worldwide uniformity. There was an older, now deprecated SEMTI standard that called for 120 nit or 35 foot Lamberts. And even that one caused confusion because there was like a, I think it was an annex or something like that to the document that said, if your display can't do this or for whatever reasons, you can use 30 foot Lamberts as an alternative. So you have people use that. And then what, you know, confuse it even more is that the actual practices between facilities was different based on we want to keep our CRTs running longer. We'd want to preserve the tube. So you had people using 28 foot Lamberts or 26 foot Lamberts. I've seen all sorts of different in-house standards. So it's been kind of all over the map. This is the first time that we really have something kind of modern that speaks to displays these days and suggests how they should be used in a controlled lighting environment. And so for us, um, that made it pretty clear. November is when we made the switch. And I think that, um, I think that you know, it, it, it provides us, again, a lot more kind of similarity between different regions. And so I'm very happy to have seen that uh, get, get adopted. But they didn't give us a, uh, a definitive gamma setting, did they? Well, um, yeah, <laughs> actually, you know, what's pointed to again is going to be BT1886. Um, and what's interesting, you know, not to kind of keep harping on BT1886, but 
as much as there's talk about BT1886, what I see implemented most on professional monitors, even outside of our brand, is either a 2.2 or 2.4, yeah. and increasingly 2.4. Um, so I, th I think 2.4 is reasonable. I think what you want to be careful of, as people correctly point out, um, is where you set your black level if you are using that, and um, especially on really, really dark displays anyway. Uh, you can get into some issues. So, but that—that's what you know. Maybe throwing up like a pluge pattern or um, or or something like that. Um, and um, uh, you know, there's several different. Uh, I think uh, Light Illusion has some different images for for brightness adjustment. And I know that in Calman they have the ability to generate a test patch of of different low light settings. And that really is probably the more important part to set that black level so that you actually see a difference between you know, video level 16 and video level 17, or sorry, so yeah, so you see a difference between 16 and up so that uh, you're actually seeing a differentiation between those and that those first few steps aren't crushed. And that has more to do with your viewing environment than anything else. So uh, th those are important considerations. Uh, again, not to downplay the usefulness of a BT1886 equation, but um, setting your black level is really the paramount thing. Now, I know there's been some discussion in, in color science circles and colorist circles about for direct view displays, like we're talking about LCDs, OLEDs, of possibly darkening the overall ambient light. I mean, typically it's, it's represented as a percentage of your peak Correct. white value. Correct. Has, did they update that as well or have they not touched that? If I'm not mistaken, the EBU document points to a 15% bias. Right. I'd have to double check that. But but yeah, there's been a lot of talk about reducing that percentage. I've heard figures as low as 5%. Yeah, it seems really dark um, to me. I mean, I, I'm not sure I want to look at a TV all day that way. Yeah. And, you know, this whole, the whole thing about gamma response and peak luminance setting and black level setting and ambient lighting... While it's very handy to have these these uh, standards, I also try to encourage people to make sure that they're doing what works for them on a kind of a personal level as well. You know, whether you have your display set at 100 nit or 120 nit, I can virtually guarantee you that it's not going to have an adverse effect on the way that you're color grading. And so I, I, I don't think that that should be something that's, that's hyper-focused on. Now, if you have something that's twice as bright, you know, if you have something that's 70 nit, uh, or not 70 nit, sorry, 70 foot Lamberts instead of 29, right, right. yeah, at that point, that might affect the way that you make Hello, decisions. Hello, HDR, because right? Yeah, HDR, and not only that, but it also, you know, luminance affects our perception yep. of saturation to some degree. So, but most people can't, you know, if, can't tell me the, the you know, whether something's at 30 or 35 foot Lamberts, they can tell me. So, right. <laughs> it, it, you know, the eye, I, as we've talked about previously, I think, you know, the, the eye is not a very good absolute measuring device, but it's a very good relative measuring device. If you put two different luminance patches on the same screen, yeah, you can see that. But if I put them in sequence, say, hey, here's, here's 35 foot Lamberts, and then two minutes later, I show you 30 foot Lamberts, people are going to have a hard time telling me which one's the, the brighter of the two typically. Now, there's always those exceptions who have the truly golden god eyes, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I know that. but uh, yeah. but by and large, most 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 uh, observers can't tell the difference. Ah, oh, wasn't that a sweet conversation? 
so relaxing. <laughs> I know, it's it gets really techy, it gets really deep, but I mean, seriously, if you're gonna take yourself seriously as a colorist, you need to understand this stuff. I mean, the display is everything. And even if you're not the guy doing the calibrations, even if you leave it to an engineer or to an assistant, it's still really helpful to understand what are the issues surrounding these things as we move forward into beyond HD when we're looking forward into things like Rec 2020, 4K, and by the way, that's what we're gonna be talking about in the final part of this interview where we're gonna be looking forward with Brahm and seeing what's coming down the pike and how that might influence us here today. On a quick side note, as we wrap up this podcast, I wanna take a moment and let you know that I'm gonna be teaching at NAB along with my mixinglight.com compadres. We're gonna be at post-production world, which is kind of an adjunct to NAB. It happens concurrently with NAB, and it's a huge teaching and training and learning environment where you basically buy a pass for either a day or three days or five days, and you can walk into one of literally dozens and dozens and dozens of training sessions, and you're free to move in and out around and about. The Sunday of NAB which is the day before the show floor opens up. Robbie Carmen, Dan Moran, and I are gonna be doing a full day color correction workshop, basically, about five sessions broken up from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. And we're gonna be talking about how does a colorist see? And we're gonna do everything starting from our primaries, going to secondaries. We'll be talking about workflows and checklists. And if you're an editor, what is it that you can do to speed up your color correction workflow? And we're gonna have a very, very special guest. We're gonna have the colorist from Chappie come and talk with us about her experience color grading that movie on a base light. They followed an ASUS workflow. And by the way, you can expect an upcoming podcast here on the Tau very shortly after we wrap up with Brahm talking about ASUS. So if you're gonna be in NAB, absolutely consider spending the day with us as we just get really geeky and just chill out talking about color correction for an entire day, followed by the Colorist Mixer that night, which is happening at the Venetian at a bar up there. But if you don't have tickets already, you're probably not gonna make it in. I can't believe the thing sold out in six days. Something like 200, 250 people sold out in six days. All right, so that's it. My name's Patrick Inhofer for TauColorGrading.com. A huge shout out to Tom Parrish who edited this episode. And I will catch you next time. Happy grading.